everyone. Good evening. <laughs> Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Right here. All right. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. It's great to see everyone. Before we get started, thank you. Before we get started, uh, we want to thank uh, Wendy Saddle for hosting us. Yay! And the staff here, they do a really nice job hustling around to accommodate all of us. We also want to thank Golden.com for promoting our events and being a stalwart supporter. And um, we have some suggestion cards on the tables this month. So if you have any suggestions, I think I'm a little too close to the speaker. Here we go. If you have suggestions for speakers, feel free to fill out one of those cards or to send us an email or to let one of us know. This is what the card looks like. If you have some ideas, we're interested. There's only a couple topics that um, if you give us a suggestion about it, we probably won't recruit that speaker, and it's nothing personal, but we aren't interested in any speakers on the topics of fracking or rocky flats. <laughs> Other people are covering those topics really thoroughly, and, and Bill's going to just cut that right out of his speech while we're, I'm warming him up here. <laughs> Other than that, thank you so much for being here, and I'm going to hand it over to Pamela... No, to our beer ambassador. Barb is stepping in for our beer ambassador this evening. Here you go, Barb Borden. Thank you. I'm substituting for my husband. I had hoped to be something like a deputy ambassador. He tells me I'm the beer babe instead. <laughs> anyway, we're having, uh, this is Cannonball Creek. We're having solid gold, Belgian golden, 7.4% uh, alcohol by volume. Cannonball Creek doesn't talk about bitterness units because they believe that that's something that has to be precisely measured in a certain way and they don't feel it can be adequately done in a particular brewery, so they just don't talk about bitterness units. So you'll just have to judge yourself. The other is Mindbender IPA, 7.5% alcohol by volume. It's an American-style IPA with assertive notes of grapefruit and pine balanced by American two-row pale and Munich malts. And... With my little riff about bitterness, I forgot to tell you about the solid gold, Belgian golden. Um, Belgian-style golden-slash-blonde ale. Belgian ale yeast contributes to an aroma of fresh tart lemons balanced by a very supple spice. Uh, highly effervescent with a crisp, dry finish. And since, unlike Frank, I'm not a great connoisseur of beer, I thought I would throw in some news about our breweries because news about Golden is kind of my thing. I do the golden.com website. So Golden City Brewery has a Yappy Hour, which is a fundraiser for Foothills Animal Shelter on the 21st of... 20, are you signaling that it's not close enough? Okay, I'm sorry. On the 21st of February, um, people who bring their dogs to the brewery will get discounts that day. And Kong, that makes those dog toys that are very hard rubber... Um, has donated a big basket. They're going to have a raffle for it. And uh, overall, it should be fun. Uh, Mountain Toad Brewery. You may, you may have read an article saying that Mountain Toad is expanding. Um, they're building another brewery over in the Coors Tech Center, which is like 44th and McIntyre. And it's going to be 17,000 square feet. And they're going to have a second tasting room. They're still going to have their facility down here on Washington Avenue. But um, they're going to have 
a larger facility for the things that they want to make in large quantities over in the Coors Tech Center, and then they're going to use their uh, brewery here for smaller, like, experimental batches. Uh, Barrels and Bottles was the business of the year, as named by the Golden Chamber. And I don't have anything very newsy about Cannonball Creek, so I thought I'd talk about their new growlers. <laughs> Most growlers, as you know, I'm sure, are glass, and they cost about $15 a piece. We discovered this one Sunday night when we were up there doing our taste testing. Uh, these are stainless steel, and they're vacuum, and so they're insulated, and they will keep your beer cold. And they're $50 a piece. So if you really want cold beer, here's a new product. And then our final brewery, this isn't exactly news, but I thought you might be interested in knowing that Coors brings in close to 300,000 visitors a year. Wow. So there we go. That's your beer news for the month. <laughs> Thanks, Barb. I don't think I can uh, call you the... It just doesn't roll off the tongue. I'm going to call you the beer deputy ambassador. Thank you. Um, so tonight we have what promises to be a really exciting talk. I see a lot of people standing, so I'm just going to add to the announcements by saying that we, are, we can bring chairs in from outside. If anybody really wants to sit down, we have some more chairs in the patio section outside. So feel free to go out there and grab some. Does anybody need to sit down? Okay. Well, uh, the reason everybody's here, standing room only, is because we have a really exciting speaker tonight. Bill Philpot. <laughs> um, he is the author of a book called Vacation Land, Tourism and Environment in Colorado High Country. I know some people have told me that they have the book um, and have been reading it. Um, he grew up in the Denver um, suburbs and now teaches history at the University of Denver. He, um, I thought it was interesting to read in his bio that his, um, he teaches what he calls environmental history, which is the history of people's interactions with the non-human world. And that's a little bit, I think, what he's going to talk to us about tonight, if we consider Interstate 70 to be the non-human world. So with that, Bill? Thank you. Can, can everyone hear me? I, I don't usually use a roving mic, but can everyone hear me okay? Okay. Um, thanks very much for having me here. Um, I apologize, and especially to Pamela for being so last minute. Um, I hit horrendous traffic, and actually this is perfectly appropriate to the <laughs> subject of the talk today. I'm coming from the south suburbs of Denver, and I hit horrendous traffic, so you might love to hate Interstate 70, but number one on my crap list tonight is I-25, uh, and again, apologize for getting here at the absolute last minute, and I'm very thankful the technology is working out. Um, this talk, I usually teach with a lot of pictures because the subject of my research is very visual, very spatial, very geographical, and so forth. I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a taste of that um, tonight. So thanks for having me here. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, and uh, uh, have an opportunity to talk uh, with you about my book, which, which as uh, Pamela said, is called Vacation Land, 
tourism and environment in the Colorado high country. And I'm going to give you a taste of that. Well, actually, let me show you uh, the cover. Uh, I'm going to give you a taste of this research, of the, of the stories that I tell in the book, um, by focusing today on I-70, uh, as, the, as the title of the talk uh, says. Um, the book, more broadly, is about the development of tourism and outdoor recreation in the Colorado high country. Um, in the wake of World War II, in the decades after 1945. Uh, and so I necessarily have to go into issues such as infrastructure building, of course, which I-70 is a, is a crucial part of that, but also image building, because one of the things we don't stop to think about with uh, the Colorado high country is that before World War II, it was not a vacation land. It was not the kind of place where people sought out uh, for leisure. It was obscure. It was little known. It was remote. It was rugged. It was very little visited. In fact, it was largely shunned by, uh, by vacation. Uh, so a lot had to happen to transform it into the vacation land that it is today. Like I said, largely revolving around infrastructure building, and that includes not just highway construction and highway improvement, but also things like building of ski resorts, uh, new ski mountain design, chairlifts, all kinds of things that made the outdoors, uh, outdoor recreation more conveniently accessible, less risky um, for, for masses of visitors. But then also image building was necessary to change the, the popular image of the high country from a place where you probably wouldn't want to go because it was difficult to drive in and the weather wasn't very good and it was just sort of a forbidding place, a forbidding landscape and a forbidding climate into a place where people would think, wow, I really want to go there and perhaps even want to live seasonally or permanently there. So, so the infrastructure building, the infrastructure building, the infrastructure and image building are both parts of the story. Again, what I want to do tonight, I'm sorry? Okay. Yeah, what I want to do uh, tonight, of course, is focus on Interstate 70. Uh, I picked here sort of a cliched classic image, a postcard image, and a lot of what I'll be showing you tonight are postcard images uh, because what I'm, one thing I try to do in the book is sort of literally to see the high country through visitors' eyes, through vacationers' eyes, and through also promoters, marketers, boosters' eyes, and, you, and postcards sort of encapsulate that way of seeing uh, the high country. So... Um, Interstate 70, you don't need me to tell you this. This would be one of those things that you don't need a historian to tell you. It's crucially important to the development of tourism in the high country. Uh, it was part of packaging the landscape, part of turning what, again, I, as I said, had been a very rugged, um, inaccessible landscape into one that was very conveniently accessible, not very risky to get into and to drive through and so forth. Interstate 70 was the single biggest factor in turning, uh, physical, at least infrastructure factor, in turning the high country into the vacation land. But a key, um, where I basically want to start the story of it is to point out that Interstate 70 was not the slightest bit historically inevitable. There was nothing historically inevitable about either the high country becoming a vacation land or Interstate 70 being built through the high country. In fact, if you look at... Um, if you look at the past before World War II, you see that not only was it not historically inevitable, but it wasn't even historically likely that there would someday be a high-volume transportation corridor right through the high country. This is a map from the 1920s uh, by the Claussen Map Company in Denver. You see Denver here. You can see Minturn and so forth here. And you don't see any even hint, really, of what would become the Interstate 70 corridor uh, in this map. You, instead, the main way through the mountains west of Denver was was US 40, high, what would become Highway 40, which is, as you know, sort of veers off to the, to the northwest before meandering its way into Utah. There was no future Interstate 70. There was no road you can point to here and say, well, Interstate 70 will later, later follow that path. There just simply was no such thing. And of course, the main reason for that 
is the topography, the, the most important, the most obvious, I guess I'd say, reason for that is the topography. You look at a map like this, this is from the 1950s, you know, dramatizing those north to south running mountain ranges, which get directly in the way of an east to west running transportation corridor, right? This was the same thing that had daunted the transcontinental railroad builders when they were trying to decide, you know, in the 1860s, where to build the transcontinental railroad. Colorado lost out on that because of those high north to south running mountain ranges. Uh, Colorado lost out on the Lincoln Highway in the 19-teens and 1920s for the exact same reason, that it was much easier to run a, a transportation corridor through Wyoming, right, and over South Pass, which is barely a pass at all, instead of directly through the highest of the Southern Rockies. Okay. Um, if you look at photographs from, yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, this is this is Eagle County. This is where this is in the eastern end of what's now Vale Valley, but wasn't known as Vale Valley back then, uh, from the 1940s. And you can see the Gore Range here, kind of walling off Eagle County from even Summit County on the other side, let alone Denver, much farther east. So those north to south running mountain ranges really got in the way and and made made as I said, a high speed transportation, high volume transportation corridor, not only. Uh, it, it was hard to imagine, right? It was, it was certainly not historically inevitable, as I said before. Really quickly, let me tell you sort of the way the transportation routes worked before that, if you want to go ahead. These are strip maps from, um, from my book, and if you see the, the top strip there from 1937, you can see that, uh, I thought I had another one. Could you go to the next one, please? Yeah. This one here, 1925. And what you can see is if you wanted to say, if you wanted to drive from Denver to Eagle, to the town of Eagle. Here's what you had to do. You had to go southwest on, on 285, what would become 285, and then at Fair Play, you would go north over Hoosier Pass into Summit County, and Dillon. Then you would turn south again, go over Fremont Pass to Leadville. Then you would turn north again and go over Tennessee Pass to Minturn and on your way to Eagle. Okay? So it's something like 75 miles, but it was over 200 miles of driving, and you went over three passes along the way, right? And that's not even counting, you know, Kenosha Pass, which again is smaller than, than Hoosier and, and Tennessee and Fremont and so forth. So it was quite a different route. By, as you can see, by, um, it, by 1955, what the highway department did is over the years, piece by piece, they bypassed those southward loops, okay? So first this southward loop here is bypassed by the construction of Loveland Pass. It was first opened as a dirt road in 1931. It wasn't paved until the early 1950s. And then this southward loop here is bypassed by the likes of Shrine Pass in 1931, again, a, a gravel, a dirt road. And then in 1940, Vail Pass, which was built as a paved pass uh, in 1940. So you can see one by one those southward loops um, sort of being bypassed and bit by bit you're going from what doesn't look like a corridor to increasingly a straight line. You can see it's still not a straight lane by any means, uh, but increasingly so. Now in 1937, at the time of that first map, if you go backwards, yeah, in 1937 this was designated the route of US Highway 6, okay? But it was still far from the main road through the mountains. Um, US 40 was still the main road west of Denver. Highway 6 was very little traveled except by locals. It wasn't a transcontinental route. It wasn't a tourist route. Uh, the boosters of the towns along Highway 6 were desperate to try to generate more traffic, and especially in the post-war period, you go forward a couple there. In the post-war period, they took some extraordinary measures to try to promote this route. This is one of my favorites. Uh, uh, this, is, this is a very goofy, a painfully, terminally goofy effort to brand US 6 by saying, stick to 6 with 
Sydney Six, and Sydney Six sadly did not catch on. Uh, so this is sort of the, you know, the, a failed uh, promotional effort, a failed booster effort, in case you think that advertising always works. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, so, so they're trying to brand uh, Highway 6, but they're also engaged at this exact same time, this is from 1956, the boosters along Highway 6 are engaged in a political effort to try to get the inter- to try to get US 6 designated as an interstate highway route. Now that seemed unlikely as well because if you look at the map of the interstate system as it was first developed, this map is from 1940, and what you can see is that the plans were for Interstate 70 to go out to Denver and then stop and dead end in Denver and not continue on its way through the high country. It's just going to stop in Denver. This is the first, what they called, interregional highway map, 1940. The next one, what was supposed to be the final Interstate Highway Act, 1947, same thing. You can see, once again, the plan was for Interstate 70 to end in Denver. So the idea that not just Highway 6, but Highway 40, either one, any route through the high country would become an interstate highway corridor seemed like pie in the sky. Now here's where I'm going to sort of fast forward. Uh, the key here is, uh, the key figure here is this guy, and here's another intentionally goofy picture, a silly picture of uh, Big Ed Johnson, the governor of Colorado in the 1930s, and then again for one final term in 1950s. Big Ed Johnson took the lead in trying to convince federal highway planners to change their minds, to 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 extend I-70 past Denver and all the way through the high country. And if you look at the records of Coloradans talking to each other, including Governor Johnson, about why this was necessary, why did Colorado need an interstate through the high country, the, th- the one issue they kept coming back to over and over again was they wanted to capitalize on tourism. There was a tourism boom going on in the United States after World War II. By far, most tourists were traveling by automobile. And in order to capitalize that and bring new business, bring new economic development to the high country, boosters, politicians wanted that interstate to be extended through the high country. Uh, so I won't go into all the detail about the lobbying for it. Uh, again, I'll th- if, if you want to ask any questions, about it, I'd be happy to go into that in the Q&A. But in 1956, uh, as part of the Interstate Highway Act, uh, Congress amended uh, that that map I showed you before to extend I-70 on through the high country into Utah. Um, and so you can go to the next map there. So, so they changed the map to this, and so now you can see that, that it's been extended all the way through. There was still the question of where exactly it was going to go, because when the, when the federal interstate planners decided, yes, uh, Colorado will get that extra mile, Colorado and Utah will get that extra mileage, what they did is they set the termini, the t- Denver on the, on the east and Cove Fort, Utah, which is in the middle of nowhere, no offense to Utah, uh, on the west, but it was still up to Colorado highway planners to decide exactly what route would the interstate take from Denver to Cove Fort. Uh, If you go to this map here, they hired, there was again a bunch of political debate over this, Highway 40 boosters were clamoring for the interstate to go along Highway 40, US 6 boosters for it to go along US 6. They brought in finally, the the state of Colorado brought an engineering firm from New York to sort of look at the engineering issues, the utilitarian issues, the economic factors, so forth of coming, not, not the environmental uh, impacts, because that was only in the future that they'd start to consider that. But this, this uh, engineering firm, the Pavlo uh, Engineering Company, in 1960 issued its report. You can see from this map here that they studied a number of possible routes. Um, the two that they finally settled on as sort of the, the, the last two standing were the one that I-70 would eventually become, here along Highway 6. But then notice their other cho- top choice was for it to swing up along Highway 40, go basically past Granby, and then on its way down the Colorado River to Dutzero here, or to Wolcott, excuse me, 
and then rejoin the Highway 6 corridor, okay? In between that, you can see they considered other routes, like ones that would have gone over Jones Pass by Berthet Pass and sort of found its way into the Blue River Valley and cut across there. Another one that would have followed the Colorado River all the way. Another one that would have gone over Cottonwood Pass outside Tabernash and, and cut across here. So once again, what I'm trying to convey here, what's evident from a map like this, is that there was nothing historically inevitable either about I-70 going through the high country or about where it actually ended up going, what path it actually ended up taking. In any case, the Pavlo company um, recommended the US-6 route in this 1960 report, and that was the route that um, Colorado, the state of Colorado ended up signing off on. Okay. Now, having gotten to that, right, now we know how the, yeah, go ahead there, how the interstate ended up, where, how the decision was made, and again, if you want me to go into more detail, either read the book, and that's not meant as an advertisement, or, or, uh, or ask me in the Q&A, um, but uh, then there's a question of what happened as a result, and this is the other thing I try to go into with the book, is not just the fact that tourism developed so extensively in the high country after World War II, but what were the consequences of that, and, and as an environmental historian, I'm especially interested in the political and cultural consequences, how people came to see the high country differently than before, how they came to imagine the nature, the landscapes, the environment of the high country differently than before, how they came to personally bond with it in many ways, as the advertisers, the boosters, the promoters wanted them to do. They tried to sell them on vacations in the high country, and they were extraordinarily successful. So you end up with things like Vail, right? Uh, which, and I picked this, this image of it to show how umbilically Vail is attached to Interstate 70, right? And there would not be uh, a sprawl mega resort in this valley without Interstate 70. If you go to the next picture, in fact, you'll see that the planners of Vail, even though a lot of people in Vail now complain about the interstate sort of, you know, marring uh, that valley, the planners, the original designers of Vail, market, uh, they, when they were trying to drum up investment in this project, they sold it based on its link to Interstate 70. You can see from a map like this, the map they would show prospective investors in Vail, and you can see that they're highlighting that it's on the future Interstate Route 70. So before I-70 was even built, when it was just planned, Vail, the Vail uh, promoters are already promoting Vail as a business model based on this high-volume corridor that would soon uh, go through there. And notice also, Vail's always in competition with Aspen. I love this map also because they show Aspen sort of hanging out there way <laughs> off the beaten path, right? Like a really remote. Uh, they're trying to convey that Vail is going to trump Aspen, right? Vail is going to outcompete Aspen because of its position on the main route. Okay. Now, the ne just a moment there. The next thing I want to do, that's, that's okay, you can go ahead actually. Um, the last thing I want to do, and, and again, I'm not used to giving a 20-minute talk, I'm used to blathering on and boring my students for an hour and a half or something, but, but what I want to do to wrap this up is to walk through some of the landscapes you see along Interstate 70 as you drive up there. So if, I suspect these will be familiar to most, if not all of you, but to read them a little bit, to read those landscapes a little bit and, tell, and sort of speak to the ways that they sort of tell us about the history of I-70's construction. A lot of the, the first part of the route to be built was the part immediately west of Denver on through Idaho Springs. Okay? And if you drive that part of the route, one thing you see is that in the 1950s and 1960s, the, the way of designing and building interstate highways was very heavy-handed on the landscape. The emphasis was on efficiency. The emphasis was on creating as straight a line as possible to speed movement along as much as possible. There's an excellent example. Right when you start through the foothills, 
when, when, when you see Interstate 70 plunge on this enormous V-shaped gouge right through the hogback, right? Right through the hogback, there's another picture of it there, um, and laying bare all those you know, sedimentary layers, uh, great for ge geology students to look at those. Um, but you know, that gouge was put in there to cut off a couple of curves and a half miles worth of distance. That's, that's all that was saved by having Interstate uh, 70 go directly through the hogback instead of where uh, U.S. Highway 40 goes, which is around the edge, the northern end of the hogback, and then along, and then paralleling along it. So by, by bypassing that part of Highway 40, the interstate designers, the interstate builders uh, cut off, as I said, a half mile of distance. That's it. But that tells you how important sort of minimizing distance, minimizing curves right, and emphasizing that straight line approach, how important that was to them. So if you drive up Mount Vernon Canyon, you can go ahead, please, thanks. Uh, if you drive up Mount Vernon Canyon, you see just how, again, that, that sort of heavy-handed approach to, uh, to highway building, uh, it, it obviously, when you build something like a four to six lane highway, plus the frontage roads on either side, because the whole idea of speeding access is to take local traffic off that highway, so you have to have frontage roads on one side or both sides. So you're talking about a very broad corridor, you're having to build through here and gouge through, uh, through the mountains, often through very narrow passageways like this immediately west of, or excuse me, east of Idaho Springs, where they had to, you can see they have to basically amputate uh, the sides of mountains to build that, or immediately west of Idaho Springs, same thing, you're sort of wedging, you're shoehorning this massive interstate through a very narrow valley, and so you often end up with very heavy-handed uh, cuts and fills and so forth in order to do that. Uh, the twin tunnels are another the recently widened, the newly widened widened twin tunnels. Another example of this, they were there, they are there to cut off that curve in Clear Creek. Highway 6 and Highway 40 ran together around that curve, but with the construction of Interstate 70, they, they developed those, they built those twin tunnels that went straight through instead of around the curve. The ultimate example, of course, is the Eisenhower Tunnel, right? Cutting off Loveland Pass and all the hairpins and so forth. Um, this is a picture of the Eisenhower Tunnel when only the westbound bore was open. The eastbound bore, which is technically the Johnson Tunnel, named after Big Ed Johnson, would open in 1979. This, wouldn't, this eastbound opened in 1973. And if, one thing I think is fascinating about the Eisenhower Tunnel is how it sort of insinuates itself into the landscape. It's hard to imagine the geography of the high country anymore without the Eisenhower Tunnel. I like this, this postcard image sort of tries to harmonize it with the landscape, right? Uh, tries to make it part of the scenery, but, but it really, you know, it, it utterly transforms the way we imagine, say, driving to or our, relate, our geographical relationship to between where we are here on the Front Range and the places up in the mountains like Summit County and Vail um, and beyond. Now, as I said before, um, the tourist development uh, in Colorado was, was exceptionally successful. Um, the high country became a what I call a vacation land. Um, and it was so successful that it didn't only bring tourists, but it brought a lot of permanent residents, brought a lot of newcomers who were in Colorado, at least in part because they wanted to enjoy the sort of outdoor lifestyle, the outdoor recreational lifestyle that Colorado was becoming known for. So you see in the Denver metro area, you know, places, new developments promoting themselves in terms of, you know, if living there, the idea is that if you live there, you would live what I call in the book a tourist way of life, that you would have constant everyday or at least weekly access to uh, the recreational delights of the nearby high country. 
country, right? And of course, uh, here's one from Jefferson County. Uh, here we are in Jefferson County. Eastern Jefferson County Chamber of Commerce, you can see rough it in style in Jefferson County, enjoy mountain scenery and metropolitan convenience. So it's trying to sell you on that tourist way of life. And if you look at the little cheesy 1960s vignettes on this brochure, um, they're, they're as much or more about recreation as they are about the places you'll actually be living, right? The, the shopping centers and the churches and so forth. So, so many people came to Colorado to live the tourist way of life, and they became very personally invested in it. It became a very much a part of their identity to live here, to recreate here, to go to enjoy outdoor recreation either on a daily basis or a weekendly basis or whatnot. And of course, their access to that was above all made possible. It was premised on the high volume, high speed access that they had from Interstate 70. So that this becomes another booster scheme, if you want to go there, uh, with, with the notorious, infamous Winter Olympics uh, effort uh, when Colorado landed, when Denver landed the Winter Olympics, um, they were going to be in 1976, uh, the Denver Organizing Committee premised its bid on the ease of access from Denver to the winter sports sites immediately west of Denver. And of course, that ease of access was utterly premised on Interstate 70. So the argument I'm trying to make here is that, that Interstate 70 becomes the basis not just of sort of promotional booster development efforts, but also of personal attachments and, and sort of personal investments in high country recreation. Those would eventually come into clash with each other because as you know, the Winter Olympics would become highly controversial. People would turn against them. Many Coloradans uh, turned against them. There were many reasons they did, but one of the refrains you heard again and again was that it would destroy the quality of life and the quality of environment in the high country. What people had come here to enjoy themselves, what they'd become invested in, what they'd, what they'd changed their lives and shaped their lives around was in danger of being destroyed by this monumental booster scheme, and so ultimately the Winter Olympics were, uh, were defeated. Let me skim two past there. Um, th uh, this, this speaks to some, the sort of last thing I wanted to talk about, which is that those environmental attachments, those personal attachments to the high country that so many Colorado residents and visitors and part-time residents developed became the basis ultimately for turning not just against development schemes, booster schemes, the tourist industry and so forth, but against the highway itself. I'll give just a few examples of that because I know I'm running short on time here. Um, Georgetown, which was a town that has always, or at least since the 1930s, promoted itself as sort of a, a little Victorian uh, miniature, right? A place where you can go and sort of see the gingerbread and the, the beautiful, the elegant Victorian architecture and so forth. Uh, there, was a, there was a proposal to run Interstate 70 right down the middle of Georgetown, right? This galvanized in Georgetown tremendous concern. You can understand why, I suppose. Um, and, but, but more than that, it galvanized a historic preservation movement, which is what Georgetown would become very well known for. They would pass a pioneering historic preservation ordinance in 1970 in direct reaction to fears that the interstate highway and the Olympics would overwhelm the town if they didn't put some protections in place to try to preserve the qualities of landscape and architecture that they'd become invested in, right? So that when, when Georgetown, uh, Georgetown was spared that direct hit, they ended up putting the interstate here on the, on the shelf road above Georgetown, uh, but that, that basically, that speaks to how, um, you know, the, the highway itself became a rallying point for environmental and preservationist measures. Silver Plume, just up the road, was not so lucky. The interstate ended up going directly through Silver Plume. So you can see here the, the historic depot on one side of the interstate and most of the town on the other side of the interstate. If you go farther west, look at this um, map here. And one thing you notice about Interstate 70, if you look at the map, is that there is one big dip left. 
There's one big difference. Remember I talked about those sort of routes that loop southward over the mountain ranges. There's one of those still left in what's otherwise a fairly straight line route, and that is the dip that goes over Vail Pass. There was a proposal in the 1960s to bypass that as well. And if you go to the next photo, I'll show you this. This is, this is Silverthorne when there was a lot less of Silverthorne. Um, and you can see Interstate 70 sort of veering off to the south here on its way over Vail Pass. But there was a proposal to continue it straight west, directly through the gap between those two mountains there. This is Red Peak. This is Buffalo Mountain. And so that was going to be called the Red Buffalo Route. It was going to tunnel. It was going to go right up that little saddle there and then tunnel through at the top. Okay? So the Red Buffalo Tunnel proposal became another environmental controversy. Uh, just show you a map there, that next one. Um, you can see there's, there's a map. So coming down from Eisenhower Tunnel, you would have gone up the next hill directly through that mountain range, through the southern tip of the Gore Range. But there was enormous environmental controversy over that uh, with you know, people decrying um, the destruction of that area because, oh, actually, let's go back just one again. Because one thing I forgot to tell you, this green shaded area here is designated wilderness. And wilderness areas are supposed to be roadless. Wilderness areas are supposed to be off limits, right? Um, so you get sort of an alliance of environmentalists, of Vail and Summit County boosters and others, and I can go into more detail, if, again, if you want, in the Q&A, uh, who rallied to basically uh, uh, oppose Red Buffalo, and ultimately the decision was made not to run the interstate highway through that wilderness area, to spare the wilderness area, and to run it along the old route over, over Vail Pass. Okay. Um, so that's why we have that, that southward swing. To go back to the, yeah, uh, over, uh, no, go forward. Let's see. Oh, yeah, back one, sorry. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Here. <laughs> here. That's all right. Um, back to this picture here. Um, Another thing you see in the 19, late 1960s in response to sort of these growing environmental concerns about the interstate itself is efforts to sort of aesthetically dress up the interstate a little bit, to try to make it a little less ugly, right? A little less uh, intrusive on the landscape. I showed you this picture before. The, the point, the, the spot where this picture is taken is atop this bridge here, which some of you may have noticed, some of you might not have noticed, that stretches over the interstate right at the time, right at the point where you get to the top of Mount Vernon Canyon and you start descending. It's right at Genesee Park. That bridge was specially designed without a center pier deliberately to try to frame that view. It's supposed to be sort of a welcome to the high country view because the first time you see those snowy peaks, uh, that, that line of snowy peaks there. So it's an example of the sort of, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but sort of window dressing, the efforts to sort of dress up or aesthetically improve the highway in response to so, some of those environmental concerns. Another example is at Copper Mountain. When you, just, when you just start to climb up over Vail Pass, you drive by Copper Mountain. Copper Mountain was specially designed to look less like a ski area than other ski areas. So this is, a, this is an aerial view of Copper Mountain. You can see the familiar sort of clear-cut stripes uh, where, the, where the ski runs are. But this is what it looks like from the road, right? And the idea was that those clear-cut stripes were actually built with sort of scalloped edges, and they preserved little islands of trees in the middle of them so that when you're down at ground level, it would look more natural, right? So another example, it's not that they're not building a ski area, but they're trying to make the ski area less aesthetically intrusive. Another great example, this comes over Vail Pass. Uh, when, the, when the interstate was extended over Vail Pass in the 1970s, here's what it looked like before, uh, the, before it became a four-lane interstate. Um, there was, by this time, there were environmental laws in place, most importantly the NEPA, the National 
National Environmental Protection Act, which required federal agencies like the Federal Highway Administration to engage in uh, environmental impact studies, basically, before they, before they did anything, before they did anything major. So Vail Pass, the, the building of I-70 over Vail Pass, had to go through a whole bunch of environmental impact statements. It went through environmental designs and so forth. And what ultimately happened, what ultimately was built there, was a very uh, sort of, uh, again, a, a route that's, that goes to great lengths to try to minimize the visual and ecological impact on that area. Um, so in, in parts, what they did was they built Vail Pass over viaducts, preserving the trees between them. In many parts, they split the eastbound lanes from the westbound lanes, so you, don't even, you can't even see the eastbound lanes if you're driving westbound. They're screened on the other side of a bunch of trees, so it's meant to look like you're more on a little two-lane country road than, than um, on an interstate. Uh, they took efforts to do things like build retaining walls uh, and, then, and then stain or paint those retaining walls, so again, to try to minimize the aesthetic impact of them and so forth. The best example, which I'm sure you have in your mind, is Glenwood Canyon. This, this would be the ultimate controversy surrounding Interstate 70, the most famous one, the most recent and probably the most vivid in most of your memories. This, again, is what Glenwood Canyon looked like before uh, when it just had a two-lane road uh, through it. There was tremendous controversy, again, about the plan to put an interstate through Glenwood Canyon. Um, and ultimately what happened, again, I'm making a very long, painful story very short, was to build a route that, that you know, they took tremendous pains. They cantilevered uh, the route out from the, from the uh, canyon wall in some places. They split the lanes from each other. So sometimes the two lanes are on one side and two lanes are on the other side. Of Sometimes they're stacked on top of each other. They run through tunnels. There are all these efforts. To, here's what, the, what they're doing here is they're using a special crane designed in, I think, Switzerland to build the road without disrupting the landscape below so they wouldn't have to sort of clear trees and do other things to damage the landscape of uh, Glenwood Canyon uh, as they were building that interstate. Uh, there are places in Glenwood Canyon where you can park and go down in a little rest area and go down to the river and look back behind you and not even see the interstate at all because of the way it's been sort of artfully, uh, you know, um, screened from view. And again, that was all part of the environmental planning of Glenwood Canyon. But I want to end on this point. There was tremendous controversy over Glenwood Canyon, over putting an interstate through there, but there was never much serious discussion of not putting an interstate through there. In other words, what most of the controversy ultimately ended up around was, let's make it look nicer. That's ultimately what most people settled for, was rather than, rather than stopping you know, the four-lane the, the, uh, four highway or six-lane highway altogether, they settled for making it look nicer. Some people, uh, John Denver led an organization that actually dared to say, maybe there doesn't need to be a four or six lane road through Glenwood Canyon. Maybe it can just remain two lanes. And he was mercilessly sort of marginalized for that because sort of uh, most sort of mainstream opinion held that this was a really fringe view. And yes, we accept that there needs to be a four lane highway through there. Uh, we just need to sort of make it look nicer. So that speaks to, I guess, there, there you know, certainly environmental concerns uh, that turned against the interstate people. Coloradans became concerned about the environmental impact of the interstate, but ultimately they were too wedded to it to really get in its way uh, in, a, in a more fundamental sense. They were too wedded to it by their own recreational interests, by their own uh, personal identity with recreation in the mountains and so forth. So even as they decried things about Interstate 70, they were, they were essentially beholden to it, and that had ways of sort of constraining or limiting the, the extent of their environmental protest. Okay. So I'll end there uh, on a nice view of uh, Interstate 70 running past uh, uh, Genesee Park and answer, well, I think beer next, right? And then, and then questions. Thank you.
Wow, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, we're just going to take about about seven minutes, I think. So get your beer quickly if you need some uh, refill, and then we're going to um, do some questions and answers. going to reintroduce the speaker to do questions and answers. So I'm getting back into my eighth grade teacher mode here, everybody. We're going to have to blink the lights. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we're we're going to go ahead and start questions and answers just a little bit sooner than we sometimes do because I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of questions. But i uh, warn you in advance that we're going to do about 20 minutes of questions and I'm just going to let you pick the person that looks like the person you want to call on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> Disappoint people. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. I should thank Cannonball Creek as well. I, that's... That's a nice beer. Um, yeah, did you have a question? Could you compare and contrast the political environment that led to these infrastructure expenditures in, the, in those years mm -hmm. compared to the political infrastructure that's not interested in infrastructure changes <laughs> today? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, the, the question was to compare the sort of the political... I guess infrastructure or culture of the times with, with ours now when it comes to public works. I mean, obviously this is a tremendous amount of expenditure in this. One of the really remarkable things about interstate highways was there, there, were, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of questioning of the interstate highways as a public works program, even though they represented an enormous investment with tremendous implications for property and all kinds of things all over the country. Uh, the, the opposition to the interstate highways was virtually non-existent when they were first when the, when the when the system was first basically planned and when the, when the interstate highway act uh, was uh, was passed in 1956 opposition really begins in the, the 1960s and it erupts first well I shouldn't say first but but it erupts most dramatically in urban areas where interstates were planned were slated to pass through urban neighborhoods, right, and basically just devastate these neighborhoods, wipe out these neighborhoods. You actually see echoes of that uh, controversy going on now in, in Globeville, Elyria, and Swansea up in, uh, up in North Denver, uh, where now CDOT is, is looking at sort of uh, uh, putting the uh, widened Interstate 70 in a, basically a depression. They're gonna, they want to put a, four, like a 40-foot deep uh, uh, sort of groove uh, in North Denver and run I-70 through it, and you see a revival of some of the um, uh, opponents to the interstate that you saw back in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but in terms of questioning it as an expenditure, as a public works, it's, re it's fascinating because it really, it never, how would I put this? It's never paid politically to oppose interstate highways development, I guess is what I would say. Uh, more typically, uh, you know, it's, it, it, the controversy has sort of um, revolved more broadly around abstract infrastructure, right, and things like that. And, and, uh, but, it, but interstate highways themselves were sort of, we have them. We're sort of stuck with them, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and one of the things you can say about that, about uh, public works expenditures, is they don't end when, you've, when you're done building the thing. You still got to maintain it, right? And you still got to rebuild it when the bridges start to fall down and things like that. So that's where the controversy comes in today is the question of, okay, if we've got you know, insufficient bridges or deterioration of the infrastructure, where's the money going to come from for that? And that's really where you've got a very different political environment now. I've, asked, I've been asked this question before more often in terms of, uh, you know, 
the controversy now over how to improve Interstate 70. The reason people love to hate Interstate 70 is because of the damn traffic, right? And, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, how can we reduce the traffic load? Um, how can we make the traffic move more efficiently? There's been proposals to widen it. There's been proposals to make it into a toll road. There's been proposals to build a monorail or some other system or something like that. And all of them get shoaled on this question of public works expenditures, right? Um, it's, it's frankly hard for me right now to imagine a political environment, for better or for worse, and personally I would say for worse, but I don't want to get political, um, uh, that, that, that basically refuses to, to invest in that sort of thing. So. Yes? They're still being debated. And they're being debated in terms of what they should look like and who will pay for them. Uh, there's some who fervently believe that any improvements or any sort of ways of expanding the capacity of Interstate 70 should be paid for by either users or by the companies that benefit from them, like the resort companies and so forth. There are others that, that, that argue that it should be sort of, that it's a broader public good and so therefore it should be paid for in, in sort of out of the broader public funding. Um, but that's, it, it, it's gotten hung up on funding and debates over what mode of transportation would work best. Again, that sort of controversy between widening the highway yet again, right, uh, versus trying to find some out-of-the-envelope approach that wasn't, isn't just about widening again, but trying to find a sort of a different approach. Yes? So knowing what you know now with the history and everything, what do you think will happen? <laughs> That's the other question I often get. <laughs> um, uh, there's an old saying about the historian is a prophet looking backwards, uh, which is to say that we're pretty useless when it comes to looking forwards. Um, but, but again, as I just said, I think in, in this current political environment, it's hard to imagine um, significant sort of the possibility of passage of a really large expenditure uh, to dramatically change or expand the I-70 corridor. And it would also, another problem involved with it is simply the geography. It's really, I mean, it is, we're talking already about a six to eight lane road in parts of, you know, something like Clear Creek Canyon or Mount Vernon Canyon. There's not a lot of space to expand, especially the farther west you get. There's not a lot of space to widen that road more, right? So that's, you know, there have been some people who've proposed double decking the interstate. I mean, just crazy solutions be extraordinarily expensive, but it's out of this desperation to serve both ends at once of having efficiency of movement, but also not too much environmental damage. It becomes a catch-22. That's a dodge of your question of what will I predict. It's very hard to predict. Yeah. The question. Yes. What about buses? That's, that's been proposed as well, you know. What's that? Yeah, there have been, but I don't, I, I don't remember who, but I've read proposals for shuttles or things like that that would shuttle people up to the mountains. Um, as you probably know, there have been proposals for things like zipper lanes, you know, appropriating, you know, one side of the highway to accommodate the direction, the traffic going in the other direction at certain times of weekend or whatnot. There's been, I mean, again, none of the proposals so far has gotten very uh, unmitigated support, I guess you can say. Yeah. In the 1950s? Okay. The question was about where were people coming from who were coming to Colorado. Um, 
in the in the forties, fifties, uh, the biggest sort of deliverers of visitors to Colorado were the Midwest and Texas. Um, so there was a lot of marketing in places like St. Louis and Chicago and Milwaukee and places like that, um, and a lot of visitors coming out there. Uh, vale itself was developed with sort of a mix of Milwaukee and Denver and Texas money. Um, uh, you know, so a lot of the visitors are coming from those kinds of places. Aspen was capitalized with a lot of money from Chicago and other places. Uh, the, the resort development of Aspen, I should say, um, but increasingly it's really in the 1970s 80s that you start to see an even broader sort of uh, it's always hard to track tourism statistics it's always hard to measure tourism uh, but but it's you really see it becoming increasingly nationwide by those later years in terms of who's delivering uh, people to Colorado now um, I mean some of you might notice I don't know if you which of you spend much time up in the mountains say at ski areas but it's increasingly international. That's, that's, that's another uh, significant change that's happened since the 1980s in particular is increasingly a lot of the people who go to a place like Vail come from Latin America or from Europe. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of Mexican money in Vail now and Venezuelan money and, and other countries like that, um, which certainly was not true at all before the 1980s. Others? You're talking about uh, with Glenwood Canyon specifically or I-70 more broadly? I think to understand that, you'd have to go back to the context of those times in those towns. And, and um, there was one of the things that an interstate seemed to promise was economic revival. These are towns that at that time were pretty moribund, um, economically speaking, in terms of because their original economies, especially if they were mining towns, their original economies had vanished 50 years earlier um, with the crash of silver in 1893. So um, there were a lot of people who were very receptive to something that would promise to deliver more business, more traffic, things like that. There was a, there was a lot of uh, support and excitement about the interstate for those reasons. Um, there were some sort of lonely voices uh, that thought maybe this is going to change our way of life and not for the better. There were even a few that I found in the 1950s who were starting to say maybe it's going to change our landscape and not for the better. Uh, but they, they didn't get a lot of traction back then. Uh, Georgetown was one of the first examples I was able to find where uh, there was significant local opposition about, about the destructive potential of the interstate. Um, in Idaho Springs in the 1950s, they built, I don't have a picture of it here, but, but uh, they built the first stretch of Interstate 70 in the high country to be built was a bypass around Idaho Springs. Highway highways 6 and 40 used to run right through the middle, they still do actually, right through the middle of Idaho Springs and it slowed traffic down dramatically. So one of the things Colorado highway planners wanted to do first and foremost was bypass Idaho Springs. So building a road around it up on the mountainside above it to the south. Um, that bypass was completed in 1958, I believe. Um, and I have an interesting anecdote about that where Idaho Springs business owners were given a tour of that new bypass when it was about to open. They were given a tour, so they all went up on a, on a Department of Highways bus and they sort of toured this new bypass and they looked down at their town from this vantage point they hadn't seen before and they realized that the, the new interstate was looking down at the backs of all their buildings where they kept all their trash. 
right? And they're like, oh my God, this is going to make our town look horrible, right? It's going to, we, we're hoping this interstate will deliver um, uh, tourist traffic, but no tourists are going to stop in a town that looks like this, right? So their concern wasn't so much about the aesthetic damage done by, or the, or the sort of social or cultural damage done by the interstate. It, their concern was about sprucing up their town to react to the new interstate, to adjust to the new reality of the interstate. So it's really not until the 19... Uh, 60s that you start to see significant local opposition like what you're suggesting. Okay. Yes. Can you place in time the, uh, uh, the extension of the four-lane highway west of Glenwood Canyon uh, through uh, the Grand Valley and yeah. the parachute area and that canyon in particular? Yeah, that was one of the later stretches to be built. Uh, Glenwood Canyon was the very last stretch to be built. It was completed, I believe, in 1993. I may have that date wrong, but it's around then. But Tibet Canyon was one of the other later ones, right? Um, and, and that's revealing not just because Tibet Canyon is topographically challenging to put an interstate through, but also because it was expected to carry less traffic. The bulk of the traffic was expected to be between Denver and those resort areas, and Tibet Canyon is too far west for that, right? So there was more emphasis on building it through places like the Vail Valley, through 10 Mile Canyon, you know, west of Frisco, uh, other, other sort of topographically challenging places like that. Uh, if you look at maps of the interstate from the late 1970s, you still see stretches around, um, around Silton Rifle and so forth where there is no interstate yet, where it hasn't been completed. And the last part of that stretch between Glenwood and Grand Junction was Debeck. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I try to be sort of value neutral in terms of the, you know, the, 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 the good of this, right? But, but there's no question that Interstate 70 and the other sort of infrastructure that was built opened up the high country. There's no question about that. It, it invited in many more, it allowed for many more visitors to be accommodated. It literally created new vantage points, new ways of seeing. Um, you know, the example I just gave you from, you know, looking at Idaho Springs from a new vantage point than before. Uh, it, you know, it opens up uh, the scenery all along Interstate 70. Uh, the, the, the famous picture I showed you of, you know, the view you have of the snowy range when you get over, uh, when, when you get to Genesee and so forth. So, so there's no question that it had that impact, right? And that, it, and that the one result of that, as I said before, was to was for many that many people became very personally invested. They found tremendous fulfillment. I find that interesting because that's this is sort of something that was off topic for this talk, but it's in the book. Um, advertising works by modern advertising, at least works by trying to bo- get you to bond personally with the things you're buying, by trying to get you to sort of think of the things you purchase as an extension of yourself or as a reflection of yourself or as a shaper of your self-image or the way you're seen by other people. So the clothes you wear, the car you drive, things like that. That's how advertising, that's how modern advertising works. It tries to work on you psychologically. It tries to bond you with the product and with the brand. One thing that's really striking to me about the high country vacation industry was how well that tactic worked right was by by so many people literally bought into this notion that they would be happier that they would be more adventurous that they would come closer to their families that they would be fulfilled in so many deep emotional and psychological ways if they recreated if they vacationed in the high country or perhaps even if they moved there 
right? And, th- and that's part of the story, is how people became so deeply personally invested. We tend to think of consumerism, and we also, I would say, tend to think of tourism as shallow, right, superficial. But there's a remarkable bond that developed between these people and the landscapes that had been packaged for them and that they'd come to recreate and that they'd bought into. And that, that, that bond, that personal bond, was strong enough to create, like I said, even this political, this political groundswell, right, of people concerned that those same qualities of landscape that they'd personally invested themselves in might now be under threat from something like too much promotion or too much resort sprawl or too much highway development, right? So, so I'd, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, add, to, to attach a sort of a moral judgment to that. Um, it's just the sort of scholar I chose to be, I guess you could say. But, um, but, I, but I, think it's, I think it's noteworthy that, um, that, those were, that there were sort of multivarious and I think really some very unpredicted uh, effects of such uh, extensive tourist development. Others. Yes. So, you, know, you said that they advertised the I-70 and people bonded with it, and that helped promote it. But now we're in a different dynamic where people are kind of against these developments. Yet they've already agreed to putting a superhighway almost right through the Vale Valley, you know, and nobody is, is really for it. Yet the Golden uh, City Council has, you know, agreed to it under pressure. So how does that dynamic work? I mean, it seems like a totally different dynamic. There's no money to build the road. They're going to make a toll road and put it through anyway for other people's economic gain. And everybody's opposed to it. I'm not as familiar with this debate, but I'm a little more familiar with the one I mentioned before, I-70 in North Denver. And it's um, there develops a sort of inertia, right? Um, in, in a case of I-70 through North Denver, you know, there are some who are proposing, instead of literally doubling down and digging a, you know, a trench through North Denver to widen Interstate 70 there, maybe they should dismantle the interstate and decide, well, we don't really need an interstate through North Denver. Or maybe they should reroute it around North Denver, you know, north, north in uh, Adams County or something, proposals like that. And it turns out to be very difficult to do um, to, to stop that sort of the, the in, I, this is a loaded word, but the inertia, right, of, um, of sort of breaking out and, and trying to think about that in a different way. With, with C-470, you have a conspicuous gap in the, in the ring route, right? There's one gap in that ring route left, and that's right through here. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not really going to touch that one, uh, but, but it is, it's, you know, you're up against a very sort of a... Um, a strong momentum in favor of sort of completing that ring route. Um, and there's a lot of interest behind, there's a lot of interests, I should say, behind that. So I do think it's striking how, and, and again, I'd go back to Glenwood Canyon as another example. Once you sort of put in place, both in people's minds and on the landscape itself, you put in place a highway, it becomes difficult to sort of back off from that and, and think about the landscape and the geography in a different way. I think there's one in Dallas now too, and so forth. Yeah, and and uh, um, and that. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, yeah. The question was, you know, about cities. This is this is a little way from I seventy, no question. But but about cities that have successfully uh, gotten interstates dismantled, right? Um, San Francisco was one of the very first ones uh, in the 1960s. The Embarcadero Freeway, uh, which cut San Francisco off from the Bay, was dismantled. It was it was sort of partially built for a long time, and then they finally took it down. Same thing in Milwaukee. There was a partially built road right along the lakefront, interstate highway right along the lakefront, and they finally took it down. So, so it, there have been successes like that, no question about it. Um, but. Um, uh, again, with Interstate 70, I, you know, the question, to go back to the other question, can I predict the future? Would, some, would there be, uh, you know, sort of groundswells of popular opinion that would change the way Interstate 70 is developed in the future? It's hard to see that right now. It's, it's really hard to see that. Okay. Okay. Others? Well, when it comes to 470. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was considered that um, a route that went through Salt to Salt Lake would be redundant of Highway 80, of I-80, going through, uh, through Wyoming, which goes to Salt Lake. Um, and so it's actually, this has been extraordinarily difficult to research, and nobody has, put, uh, uh, nobody has been able to locate the documents, the smoking gun documents. Why did federal highway planners approve a route from Denver to Cove Fort? You know, I can understand why they didn't do it to Salt Lake for the reason I mentioned. They thought it would be redundant of I-80, but why Cove Fort? Um, if you look at a map, I-80, once it gets out of Colorado and into Utah, it starts to angle southwesterly, and then it dead ends at I-15, and I-15 goes down to Los Angeles. And it's the best evidence I was able to find was that a, a tipping point in deciding on that wasn't anything that Big Ed Johnson did. It wasn't any of the arguments that Colorado boosters or politicians made. We need an interstate for tourism. It wasn't anything like that. It was the Army. It was the Army that wanted a, another direct route between the Plains, the Great Plains in Denver, and Los Angeles. Um, so that seems to, as far as I can tell, the best evidence I've been able to find, which is all circumstantial, but not quite smoking gun, was that, um, was that the Army was a major factor there. Keep in mind that at the time the Interstate Highway Act was enacted, uh, national defense was considered to be one of the reasons for creating the Interstate Highway System. In fact, it was originally called the National um, Interstate and Defense Highways Act. Uh, or system, so it was it was meant to sort of maximize the the ease of moving war material, troops, and so forth across the country. Of course, it's the time of the Cold War, so there was a lot of concern about that. All right, thank you so much. That was really fascinating. I'm, since he wasn't really promoting his book, I just want everyone to know that um, his book is Vacation Land. It's available, okay, on Amazon. Um, <laughs> and I just want to say thank you so much for being here, and thank you all for being here tonight. I want to reiterate that if you have ideas for future speakers, particularly if you have contact information and a personal connection with those speakers, make sure that you fill out the card and give it to Carl right there, um, before you leave. 
And our next speaker for next month, the second Tuesday in March, is from Agroburbia. Do we have a name? Quid Redmond. Quid Redmond from Agroburbia, which should be another interesting talk. Thanks, everybody, for being here.